Hi, it's Bonnie here. This is where we bring you all the latest news, interviews and analysis from the Evening Standards newsroom every day at 4pm. Thanks for listening. If you like it, hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. Now, from the Evening Standard in London, this is The Leader. Hi, I'm Bonnie Christian. How the pandemic could create an educational underclass in London. Children being sent home throughout the pandemic, he thinks is going to cause things to go backwards because those children were sent home without access to education, some of them. Teach First founder Brett Wigdortz tells our education editor Anna Davis why he's worried the education gap could widen again. And... A lot of those older films really haven't aged well in terms of their depiction of women. The Standards Arts Commissioning Editor Katie Rosinski says a new wave of female directors are changing the face of horror. Taken from the Evening Standards editorial column, this is The Leader. In a moment, fears the pandemic could widen London's education gap. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The founder of revolutionary charity Teach First has issued a stark warning. The coronavirus pandemic risks creating a so-called educational underclass in London. Brett Wigdortz says years of work to improve the life chances of the capital's most disadvantaged children risks backsliding after students were forced to learn from home and those from more advantaged backgrounds are finding it easier to recover from lost time. Our editorial column says he's right to raise the alarm. Many pupils are still missing lessons as class bubbles are sent home after a positive test. The response must be a redoubling of the government's efforts to help children catch up and a focus on ensuring that the one billion that has been allocated to do this is used predominantly to help the most disadvantaged children. Additional investment should be provided too if evidence emerges that disadvantaged children are suffering from further misclasses. The pandemic must not be allowed to blight permanently any child's future. 
The Standard's education editor, Anna Davis, joins me. Anna, what work has Teach First done to narrow the education gap between London's rich and poor pupils? Brett set up Teach First as a way of training new teachers and sort of parachuting them into the poorest schools. So he got top graduates um, who were leaving Oxford and Cambridge, who were probably going to go on to become lawyers or city workers, to commit to working for a couple of years in teaching in deprived schools before they went on with their careers. That was the idea back in 2002. And it grew into such a massive teacher training organisation that it's become one of the biggest graduate recruiters in the country. And it's been really successful at getting sort of bright and enthusiastic, talented young graduates to work in inner city and deprived schools. Many have gone on to then stay in teaching and not just do it as a teach first and then going on to other careers. Um, So it's a different way of training and it's a way of getting people into poorer schools. It was really successful. And then he left three years ago, but he, um, you know, he continues to be a, a big name in education. So the idea was to help poorer children That was the initial idea with inspirational teachers um, who would go and bring sort of fresh blood into these schools and inspire them. So how has the pandemic affected the work Teach First has done up to this point? I mean, the main problem is many children were just not able to work during those six months that they were off school for. So while they're at school, you know, whatever background they're from can be overcome because, you know, schools do so much to level people up you know and give everybody the same opportunities but then when they were sent home for six months you know many don't have a bedroom to work in or a quiet space to work in a computer or access to the internet so they found it very difficult to work and keep up but then their sort of more privileged peers uh, who did have access to all those things could continue to excel, which is why the gap has widened between those children from different types of backgrounds. And that's what Brett's really worried about is that, you know, the pandemic has just widened this problem that was, you know, it seemed that we were getting it under control and and many things had helped reduce that gap. Um, And if nothing is done now, he worries that, you know, we're just going to go backwards. And if you're from a poorer background, you're not going to do as well at school, which is just, which is just unfair. Mr Wigdortz mentions London has been a world leader in educational improvements, but now, as you say, is really worried of a backslide that will create what he terms a permanent educational underclass. What exactly does that mean? London, maybe 15 years ago, was not seen as a a great place to educate your children. But due to a number of initiatives, including Teach First and something called London Challenge, which um, was launched by the then Labour government to boost results in London, have actually really worked. And I've written so many times over the years, over the last few years, that the results in London are outshining those elsewhere in the country you know children especially if you're from a poor background do much better in London schools than they would do elsewhere and that's from a combination of all those different things and that's why he's saying you know when he travels the world as an education expert you know people really look to London as a success story but it's this problem with children being sent home throughout the pandemic that he thinks is going to cause things to go backwards because those children were sent home without access to education some of them you know they weren't able to do the work and and that's what he thinks you know could create this educational underclass of children who 
you know, start off from poor backgrounds and, you know, the school doesn't help them to get out of those backgrounds uh, because they, they didn't have access to all the education that they missed out on throughout the pandemic. Did he give you a sense of how difficult it might be to reverse the impact the pandemic could have? He was not unoptimistic. You know, I, I don't think it's um, insurmountable. You know, some of the things that the government has done, uh, he said, haven't gone far enough. So, for example, GCSE and A-levels are being put back by three weeks to allow extra teaching time so uh, pupils can try and catch up on some of that work that they missed. He doesn't think that's gone far enough um, and other things need to be done. Some head teachers have said pupils need to be given special consideration um, for their exam results this year if they haven't been able to work properly during the pandemic. But the main thing he's concerned about and other head teachers is that schools don't close again. Um, keeping schools open is key now because when they're in school, they can learn and they can catch up on all, all the stuff they missed. And you know they're equal, um, whatever background they're from. But if you shut the schools again and they go home you know, without access to the laptops and things like that, then that's where the problems um, will continue. Next. There's always been this kind of weird attitude that somehow, I don't know, women aren't up to it. How female filmmakers are regaining ownership over the horror genre. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Shirley has these bouts. She's gone sick in the head. I read your story. What are you doing here? It made me feel thrillingly horrible. The trailer for Josephine Decker's nightmarish old biopic, Shirley. It's one of a string of new horror films directed by women that are set to be released this year. The Evening Standards Arts Commissioning Editor Katie Rosinski says the genre is finally breaking away from a boys' club of directors and becoming an attractive option for women to make their debuts. And this new wave of female-led horror is playing fast and loose with the rulebook. Katie joins me. You say women can feel squeamish when they're watching horrors, but for all the wrong reasons. Why is that? Historically, the horror genre has had quite a bad track record when it comes to representing women. If you look back to sort of like classic kind of slasher horrors, 
it's full of female victims, depictions of quite graphic and often sexualised violence against women. You also have this trope of the final girl, who's the kind of only woman who's allowed to sort of make it out alive of this kind of massive bloodbath. Quite often it's that's because they've been sort of deemed to be more kind of superior or purer than their other kind of female counterparts, which kind of ties into this quite retrograde and conservative puritanical morality that there's a lot of weird stuff around like women and sex in in horror films and I think that a lot of those older films really haven't aged well in terms of their depiction of women. What's typically been the attitude of male horror directors when they've been asked about the lack of female directors or writers in the genre? The male kind of gatekeepers of the genre haven't always responded to criticism of the depictions of female characters or in fact the just general representation on screen and off of women in the genre in um, particularly productive ways. As recently as 2018, Jason Bloom, who's the head of Bloomhouse Productions that works primarily in horror films, um, he was asked about the fact that his company haven't actually at that point employed any female directors and um, his response was to say well you know there aren't many women who are directors and there are even fewer of them who are actually inclined to do horror films so there's always been this kind of weird attitude that somehow I don't know women aren't up to it. Historically, as you say, it's been a bit of a boys club. Is this starting to change? Yeah, definitely. In the past decade or so, actually, um, there's been this really kind of exciting new wave of female filmmakers working in the horror genre. Even recently, like just in the past few months, St Maud, which is the debut film from Rose Glass, has been one of the most anticipated releases of the year. Do you get a response? Oh, it's like he's physically in me. It's how he guides me. It's now actually number two in the box offices at the moment. It's behind Christopher Nolan's Tenant, and it's actually, you know, considering the, the circumstances that cinemas are going through at the moment, it's actually put in a really strong showing. Another sort of horror-esque film that's recently come out is Josephine Decker's biopic of Shirley Jackson, who is obviously, you know, this amazing female horror writer who was writing in the the 40s and the 50s in the US. She's responsible for books like The Haunting of Hill House, which was adapted by Netflix a couple of years back. Um, I wouldn't say it was straightforward horror, but it definitely plays with the conventions of the genre in kind of interesting ways. What happens to all lost girls? As we see more women directors, writers and actors coming onto the scene, are we also seeing that they're taking the genre in a new direction? Yeah, definitely. I think what's really exciting about some of those films that I've mentioned and also a couple of other um, recent releases is they do kind of delve into that um, really interesting psychological territory or they kind of come at horror almost from a more emotional angle. At the end of the month, a film called Relic is being released. It's um, from a first-time female director, Natalie Erica James, and that is set in an old house with three generations of women. And it deals with topics like dementia and the burden of caring for an ageing parent, as well as kind of trafficking in all these 
the usual horror tropes, which, yeah, felt like a really interesting way of kind of amping up that sense of terror because, you know, that's almost quite a universal fear, really, something like losing grip of a a loved one in that way. So what do you think makes the horror genre so attractive to female directors? For female filmmakers, especially ones in the early stages of, of their careers, it's a genre that has worked with quite low budgets if you think about how kind of classic horror films build tension create a sense of claustrophobia and isolation it's actually quite cheap to do all of those things like you don't need you know vast sweeping locations you can do it all kind of on one quite small set really and also horror films you know they don't always tend to have massive stars attached to them So in a way, especially when you consider how often female filmmakers might struggle to get filming, especially for their debut feature, a film that's cheap to make is always, you know, a pretty attractive proposition. There's also the fact that horror is quite a buoyant market for cinema goers, like horror fans, um, statistically, they spend more at the box office. They're also quite receptive to kind of new talent and new ideas. So I think those kind of practical considerations as as well as being able to like push the genre in new directions make it quite attractive and that's the leader you can read more on those stories by picking up a copy of the newspaper or visiting standard.co.uk whatever you're doing this weekend have a nice one this podcast is back on monday see you then